Welcome to the Team Peds Talks focused on child and adolescent mental health, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, where we are experts in pediatrics and advocates for children. Thank you for joining us for our episode. This series of podcasts will have important conversations with pediatric healthcare providers who are working to equip families to respond to mental health concerns emerging in the COVID-19 pandemic. I am your host, Jessica Peck, NAPNAP's Executive Board President. I am a pediatric clinician, a professor at Baylor University, anti-trafficking advocate, and most importantly, mother of four. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this episode of Team Peds Talks. I'm your host, Jessica Peck, president of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. And we're going to be continuing our series today on child mental health. We've got a new topic for you today, something we haven't covered before in this series, and that is disordered eating. Uh, a lot of parents are concerned about what their kids are eating, eating too much, eating too little, getting adequate nutrition when all of our ways of being normal are just disrupted. We've got a great expert for you today. We've got Dr. Christina Swiner. She is a nurse practitioner on the pediatric consult liaison service in a major children's medical hospital. Uh, she also obtained her postgraduate certificate as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. And we have talked to some of those specialists before. She has presented on a variety of topics talking about caring for patients eating disorders at the bedside, but also caring for patients with eating disorders in the primary care setting. And she um, just has a lot of experience dealing with eating disorders and other mental health comorbidities, which is just basically a fancy word for saying other mental health illnesses that come along with eating disorders. And so, Christina, we are so glad to have you here on Team Feeds Talks today. I'm so excited to be here. I appreciate you taking the time to invite me and giving me this wonderful opportunity. Absolutely. Well, let's just get in. You know, I always love to hear everybody's backstory because obviously you're an expert on eating disorders. And how did that happen? Can you tell us a little bit about your nursing journey and how you became to be an expert in this subject? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a bedside nurse, like most of us start out as, and went back to school and got my doctoral in pediatrics, and then kind of fell into a job in the mental health field. And when I was searching for a job and looking at what was out there, I came across a job at my institution on our psychiatric consult team. And they're the ones who in the medical facility come to the bedside to answer those psychiatric questions we have as medical providers or as nurses. And the physician who was running the team at the time was looking for a nurse practitioner to join the team. And I went, you know, he is a wonderful individual. He's an excellent teacher. If I'm going to make this jump, I'm going to do it now. And I jumped in with two feet with uh, very little specific mental health education and you know fell in love i learned so much just getting my hands dirty and seeing these patients and asking questions and then of course went back to school to learn even more and um here i am almost five years later still doing it still learning a lot and caring for these patients who are very sick both medically and psychiatrically 
Well, that's really exciting to hear and not uncommon. And I love hearing about your transformation, you know, following the doctor of nursing practice program, which really just does equip us to, to impact population health. You know, not only that patient provider dyad where we're helping kids one-on-one, -on -one, but where we're helping lots of kids. And that's what you're going to do today because we have lots of kids, billions around the globe, in fact, who are socially isolated, distressed. We've been talking all about the ways that kids have been impacted by the pandemic. From your perspective and your expertise and specialty, what are you seeing? You know, are we seeing increased numbers? Do we have any of that information yet? Or how do you see kids eating impacted? Yeah, so I really wish we had like the solid numbers from 2020, but we just don't yet. But I've seen a lot being at the bedside and working in healthcare. We're one of the few fields who, you know, never left the work world, didn't transition to virtual um, significantly. We are there in the, the trenches of things. Um, and I'm in a very unique position where, you know, I consult to the bedside in the medical setting. So I'm seeing patients that are very medically ill with acute psychiatric concerns. And what I've seen over the past year is the rate of eating disorders and the complexity and acuity of these cases has increased exponentially. Um, many of these individuals, I come in and meet and I sit down with them and their families and in hearing their stories, I don't know how many of them are, well, back in March, this is what happened. Or back in April, I started to do this. And as the pandemic progressed, as quarantine progressed, like this started to happen and it kind of just spiraled out of control. So we know that eating disorders are really complex illnesses that have both significant mental health and physical health consequences, and they are the highest mortality rate of any mental health illness with a mortality of up to 10%. Um, one in five individuals die from an eating disorder by suicide. And the global rates of eating disorders has actually increased over the past decade from 3.4 to 7.8%. And it'll be really interesting to see what um, those rates are now that we are a year into this pandemic. Um, so with COVID, we have seen more individuals battling eating disorders and the individuals that we are encountering in the health system are sicker. So we think that this is happening for a multitude of reasons, uh, whether that's disruption of daily routine and activities, media exposure, social isolation, modifications in physical activity, disrupted sleep, negative affects and co fear cognitions, lower protective capacities such as social supports and then limited access to care. So like I said before, the acuity of the patients that we're seeing is very high. We have patients who are coming in more malnourished and more entrenched in these eating disorder thoughts than I've ever seen before. I've encountered some of the lowest BMIs, some of the youngest patients, and some of the most significant behavioral issues that I've ever encountered. Um, I met a young lady probably six, seven months ago now uh, following extubation because she was so malnourished. So to give those listeners an idea, this young lady came in by med flight from a community hospital, intubated in respiratory failure because her body just couldn't support her anymore because she was wow. so malnourished. Um, her BMI was 10. Wow. So she was very, very sick. And 
just on the medical side of things, I think she was here for a minimum of two months, just getting re-nourished um, alone before she can move on to the next step in care. And I've cared for some of the youngest kids I've ever seen, nine, 10 years old. Um, and these kids who come in this young, who are entrenched in their eating disorder are so irrational. There's no like negotiating or explaining an eating disorder to these kids. And if you think about the developmental stage they're at, they just don't have the capacity to do this. And that's where we're seeing more and more of these behavioral outbursts and the different things that they do to avoid eating because they're scared. Uh, kids with eating disorders and even young adults, their biggest fear is food. And trying to overcome that fear is very difficult. Um, and one of the scariest things they have to face. What I tell a lot of families I meet is that, you know, an eating disorder is separate from your child. So you have your child and then you have the eating disorder and they have been overtaken by this eating disorder. It's almost like an alien invasion has taken over your child and you are seeing and hearing things that your child might have never done in the past. And we ask when a child presents for refeeding that they face their fear, their greatest fear in the world, the fear that they think is doing them harm, and that is food, six times a day, because we give them three meals and three snacks a day while they're here in the hospital. So that's overwhelming. Okay. And the type of fear that these patients explain to me is, for example, like being locked in a room with a tiger. And you're not only locked in that room, but you have to give that tiger a bath. So you have to do this very scary thing that you think is going to harm you repeatedly and face it day after day until your body is in a spot that you can understand what's going on. And we can get these eating disorder thoughts under control, but it's a very hard thing to go through. And on top of that, I've met not only the younger kids, but these young adults who are coming in struggling with these diseases. And they are to the point that they're so malnourished that they don't understand the consequences of not eating. They're stuck in kind of this um, circular thought process that they can't get out of. And all they want to do is go back to not eating. They don't want to be refed. They don't understand the consequences of not eating. Um, they're not rational. They can't reality test um, and they don't um, make good decisions for themselves. So in those cases, these patients, these young adults who we want to be autonomous are trying to make decisions that could kill them. And we in those situations do what we call a capacity assessment. So we look at whether they understand the risks and benefits of the decision they're making. And a lot of times I see these individuals not able to tell me what the risks of leaving the hospital while they're bradycardic and their potassium's low or um, what would happen if they stopped eating or they couldn't get enough nutrition in. And in those cases, we say those patients don't have capacity to make decisions, so they can't leave against medical advice. And for those young adults that are really struggling, then we seek, you know, next to kin for parents to step in and make those medical decisions. And sometimes we have to go to court 
to get what we call emergency guardianship and guardianships over these young adults so that we can care for them in the way that we know is best. Um, and we've been seeing this situation more and more over the last few months than I've seen in my career. Well, Christina, wow, those are really sobering and frankly, scary things that you've just shared with us. I want to go back to something that you said when you just started talking that eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of all mental health illnesses with a mortality rate by 10, of 10%. I think that's going to be really shocking and eye-opening to a lot of you listening out there thinking of that because you wouldn't put eating disorders high on the list. And then you've talked about being intubated and not being able to have rational thought. And this can be really scary for both pediatric providers out there who are trying to care for patients and outpatient, uh, and also for parents who are at home thinking my child has an eating disorder and you know maybe I'll just wait and kind of see how it is. But what you're saying is that this is a mental health crisis. So how do we support these families in, in light of that, can you, can you give us some hope? Yeah, so there is definitely hope out there. And I, I do have to emphasize a couple of things. So right now, our mental health system is limited. And even prior to COVID, it was stressed and lacked many resources. Where wait lists were long, I talked to families who are like, well, I can't get in for six months, a year. They were really long wait lists. And now we're having even more difficulties making these demands and we're unable to seek treatment quick enough for these patients. And I think that's part of the reason we're seeing them come in so sick. So the more families are educated, the more primary care providers are educated, uh, the sooner that we can get these kids help and maybe stop them from being so sick and so acute when we see them. Um, so I think knowing the warning signs, knowing when to seek help, knowing where to get education is really, really important. Um, so there's no like quick fix to filling this gap, but I think for primary care providers to reach out, get that education and be prepared for when you do have kids come into your office and say, I'm struggling with eating. Our parents are saying, you know, I can't get them to eat dinner. They're starting to fight me back. I'm seeing weight loss and being very conscious of what you are telling families um, when you do interact with them around food. I have met even prior to the pandemic, young adults and adolescents who would say, you know, I interacted with this healthcare provider or my health teacher or a teacher who said, um, I needed to lose weight or sugar is bad or um, I should be counting my calories. And sometimes those things really spiral out of control for uh, these young individuals who can't conceptualize the full picture. So being careful around your messaging, you know, always framing things around balance, and healthy eating, not necessarily weight loss um, is a really important thing to do. Um, so in the community, 
when you're meeting with these patients and families, have a meal plan prepared for them. These families are a loss. So providing them with a handout going, you know, this is what an example of what they should have for breakfast and lunch and dinner and snacks. This is the amount of calories they should need. And we don't necessarily say families should be calorie counting, but they should have a good sense of what their child's getting in and having ground rules for those meals and food intake. Things like you must eat at the table or you have to um, have somebody present with you when you are eating. You have to be eat whatever is presented to you because you'll see as these kids get more and more entrenched in their eating disorders that, you know, that uh, bread or that carb that was once okay to eat and a part of their normal diet is now off limits. And it's a no food, it's a fear food, and they won't eat it anymore. But parents know, you always ate spaghetti growing up, and you've never had an issue. No, you're not lactose intolerant. No, you're not gluten insensitive sensitive. Like those are things that parents know about their kids. And when they're entrenched in an eating disorder is not the time to change a diet. It's not the time to become vegan or vegetarian. And sometimes those are actually warning signs that something is not going right is when you see a kid suddenly decide that they're vegetarian or vegan. And that hasn't been a family thing um, or a cultural thing. Uh, so just being in tune to some of those warning signs and ground rules are important and they are, these are the rules. There's no negotiation. Uh, kind of like we say with terrorists, we don't negotiate with terrorists. We don't negotiate with eating disorders. So these are the rules. This is what we have to do. And if we don't do it, our eating disorder has a consequence. So not necessarily the child um, because the child has been overtaken by this, you know, other entity, this alien, the eating disorder. So if the child does not finish the meal, that's okay. Here's a supplement or, you know, you're going to have to finish it at snack time. And if they don't, then, okay, you're not getting enough calories in. We need to go get evaluated. We need to go see the doctor. We need to figure out the next step. Um, sometimes it's unfortunately having consequences like not being able to go out with friends, not being able to go to in-person schooling because we need to supervise these meals and do these things. Another thing that we recommend is having a time limit for these meals. So meals, 30 minutes, you should be able to finish your meal. And the reason we put time limits on meals and snacks is because we don't want these kids sitting in front of food all day. And that can be really overwhelming, kind of like that fear that I alluded to earlier. Um, and then having eating disorder education readily available for families, what resources to reach out to, those types of things are really important. And having a backup plan. So that plan for families, you know, if you know you don't eat X amount of meals per 24-hour period, you need to go to the ER or you need to come in and we need to do a blood draw, make sure your electrolytes are okay or whatever it may be. And then referring early. If you're concerned, get those referrals in early because yes, those wait lists are long and our resources are limited. And that's just the reality of things. Um, and making you know, those yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. Christina, I was just yeah. going to say, you know, all of these things that you're saying, it's still, it sounds a little scary, you know, and a lot of times with, with kids, you know, especially teenagers, we're trying to engage them and helping to create their own care plan. But really, when you've described the severity and the danger of eating disorders, you know, you're describing a, 
a, a really stringent and dramatic response. And I imagine that that would be really difficult for some parents, you know, to hold the line, especially when you see your child with genuine fear. You know, the fear of food is real and you're trying to understand the fear, but you don't understand being afraid of food. And you think, like, come on, like, why can't you just eat the food? Like, just get over it. You know, how do we understand that? That That's really hard. So I think that, you know, you, you talk a little bit about sometimes, you know, medications can help as well. Can yes. you some information about that? Absolutely. So there is no FDA approved medication for the treatment of eating disorders, but we do know that there are some off-label uses for medications that are helpful and that there are medications for those comorbid conditions that come along with eating disorders. So those things like depression and that anxiety, that intense fear that comes with eating disorders. So if the child is a child that has kind of the binging and purging type eating disorder, Prozac has actually been found to be really beneficial. And that one is FDA approved specifically for the binge purge. Um, but the rest of the medications are kind of off-label uses. And the most common things that we treat in addition to the eating disorders are depression, anxiety, and OCD. So about two thirds of individuals with eating disorders have anxiety disorders. And usually those developed before the eating disorder, but not always. And we tend to see them heightened during the eating disorders. About 94% of individuals have a mood disorder such as depression, and about 20% have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So the most common medications that I use to support patients are selective serotonin re-up intake inhibitors, SSRIs. These are things like Prozac and Zoloft and Lexapro. And what they do is they help to maintain weight and prevent relapse. And they help with the depression. They help with the anxiety. Um, and they work by blocking the presynaptic transporters for serotonin reuptake. So they basically make serotonin more readily available in the brain to promote the antidepressants and the anxiolytic effects of the medication. So the, the biggest roadblock with these medications is they take time to work. So they're not going to be the, the quick on, I'm going to you know get this anxiety and this depression under control right now. They take a few weeks to work. So getting these medications started early can be helpful, but we also know in malnourished individuals that they don't work at their best because they don't have enough protein to bind. But there's they're a tool, right? So some medications that may be a little bit more quicker to help. Um, one of them is called olanzapine. It's also known as Zyprexa. And again, this is an off-label use, but it is a serotonin dopamine antagonist that can help with both the anxiety and sometimes the agitation that we see with eating disorders. Uh, and it's particularly helpful with some of the behavioral symptoms that we see and the intense anxiety and fear and some of the OCD symptoms that are associated with eating disorders. And this one takes 15 to 20 minutes to work and it can be really helpful. Um, I tend to dose it sometimes before meals, especially those bigger meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner, because those are the most overwhelming ones and I use really tiny doses. So um, when 
the parents listening or some of the healthcare providers listening, go ahead and you know look up this medication. It is used for a variety of different reasons in psychiatry. Uh, one of the most common is bipolar and psychosis. But to give you an idea, in eating disorder patients who are struggling with anxiety, we use very tiny doses. So like 1.25 or 2.5, where for those other conditions, we're using 20, 30 milligrams. And the reason for that is it hits the receptors differently and helps um, manage the neurotransmitters differently in those cases. Another medication that is really good for as needed anxiety in those intense fears is a medication called hydroxyzine, also known as Adorax or Visceral, and it's an antihistamine. It works great for anxiety, it works great for nausea and vomiting, insomnia, again, an off-label use, but it treats that physiological response we have to anxiety, that, that panic, that racing heart, that difficulty breathing, and kind of dampens it. It's more for that mild anxiety that we see, sometimes a moderate, and patients find it really helpful. Um, the last medication I want to mention is called Abilify, and that medication has actually had newer research out um, that shows that it can be really helpful to improve brain function, support learning, reduce anxiety, and aid in the psychotherapeutic intervention. It works on the dopamine D2 receptors, um, and it has effects on energy homeostasis, leptin signaling, and body composition. And at low doses, it can actually help to um, interrupt that really intense and rigid eating disorder cognitions and that circular thought that patients get in. Um, so that's another tool that we can use and can be really helpful for these patients. Well, and I'd like to take this moment to remind our pediatric clinician listeners out there that our first episode in this series was with psychiatrist Dr. Sarah Martin, who talked about how to access these services in primary care. So a lot of times, you know, you may be listening as a pediatric clinician and think, well, you know, I haven't prescribed to those before. I'm not familiar with that, but there are resources that you can access. Go back and listen to that episode with Dr. Sarah Martin and they'll tell you how you can access consult with psychiatry who may be able to help you make some of these uh, decisions about prescribing. Now, you know, after we've talked about some of those medications, Christina, we need to talk about behavioral issues. And you actually have some really good advice, especially for parents and for pediatric providers to give parents who may be feeling frustrated with their child and, and frustrated with themselves for being frustrated with their child. So what, what advice do you have for those that are really struggling with this? Yeah, so with eating disorders, we see lots and lots of different behaviors across the spectrum. And I just want to kind of put a reminder here that these behaviors are not the child. And rather, they're a part of the eating disorder. So things that we see, for example, are violence, um, maybe physical violence or throwing things. Um, things that you can do in those situations are letting the child be, having that moment to calm down, um, but still, you know, going back to those ground rules, they still have to finish the meal um, once they calm down. They still need to complete the task at hand because that food is their medicine in that moment. Um, some patients require physical restraint and that's, you know, the parent maybe needing to give them a bear hug until they calm down. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, we do need to involve the police and call the police to keep everybody safe, keep that patient safe, that child, that, that parent, uh, whoever it may be. Um, things like throwing food or plates, um, 
using disposable plates and utensils, things that aren't gonna break or harm people as much when they go flying, um, cooking extra food. So that again, you're still sticking to that plan, those ground rules that you have to finish the medicine, the food that's placed in front of you and you threw it on the floor. Okay, here's a new serving. Let's try this again. Let's do this together. Um, Self-harm sometimes pops up in these individuals or increases in these individuals. Um, so providing constant supervision, and that can be really difficult in the outpatient setting. So enlisting trusted friends or relatives to help supervise meals or behaviors around the clock, having them sleep in your bedroom. Uh, I mean, I'm reminding you, this isn't forever. This is to get them through really acute phases, putting uh, locks or alarms on doors and windows, uh, keeping or removing all sharp objects, medications, glass from the home, um, locking those things up and taking your child or the patient to the ED if they make suicidal remarks, get them assessed. A lot of children hate going to the ED. So sometimes that's enough to deter some of these behaviors and uh, quiet the eating disordered thoughts a little bit more. Uh, things like running away, all the police, take they'll take them to the emergency department to be evaluated, they'll return them home, um, have smartphone tracking technology on their phone so that you can track them and find them and bring them home to where it's safer. Uh, notifying family and friends of how to respond. So, you know, the patient runs away, the child runs away, the adolescent, um, having family or friends where they may present to call you and bring them back home. They still need to eat. They still need to work through the program and get their body refed and renourished. Um, some things to try and break that binge purge cycle that some of these patients experience is providing those regular meals actually helps and including foods that are craved or feared, um, fear, foods that they often may binge on as more of an appropriate portion so that they're not craving them or not restricting them um, to the extreme that then they binge on them and providing those supervision during meals and between meals and all that can help deter some of those behaviors. Preventing the purging. So things like you can't use the bathroom for up to an hour after meals, please use it before the meal. Um, accompanying the child to the bathroom. Yep, it's not the greatest privacy thing, but it does deter a lot of these behaviors. Requiring that the door is left cracked, but still monitoring. So I have, you know, some patients or families or even here in the hospital staff members, you know, they kind of watch out of the corner of their eyes. And if they make moves to, you know, make themselves throw up or exercise, things like that, then they immediately interfere. And once you've interfered as a practitioner or a parent a couple of times, then their eating disorder just learns not to try that behavior again. Um, and then things like limiting exercise. So a lot of times you'll see these patients and individuals wake up in the middle of the night to exercise. They'll sneak off to bedrooms to exercise. They'll run laps at school when they think nobody's watching. They'll be the ones who exercise while watching TV or standing and never sitting. They, you'll see them um, just sit there and tense up their muscles and release and tense them and release. And that's a way of burning calories all the time. So again, that constant supervision, leaving all the doors in the house open. You're not allowed to, you know, be in your room alone anymore. Sorry. Um, you'll get that privilege back once we get this under control. 
restricting school activities. So maybe they need to eat in the office or, you know, they're not allowed to go to the gym at school or whatever it may be. Uh, limiting the access to the scale. So that can be a repetitive behavior that we see in eating disorder um, patients is that they want to weigh themselves over and over and that becomes almost an obsession. So remove it from the house. Ask family and friends that you may be visiting to hide their scale when you're there so that they're not reinforcing those behaviors. Some other behaviors that we see are eating food in a specific order or preventing food from touching, dismantling food, eating really slowly or really quickly, smearing food or chewing incessantly, um, taking tiny bites or even hiding food. Um, and all of these, I think, need to be behaviors that you address on an individual basis. But some things to think about are when you present a child with food or are coaching parents on how to present food is make sure the food's fully assembled. Don't have them putting the mayo on their burger or the ketchup on their burger or, you know, those types of things is already there. You have to eat it. Um, and I coach my the nurses I work with on this all the time because I've seen patients who don't do that for themselves and then they get stuck with you know the butter or the syrup on the side of the pancakes and they eat the pancakes which is great but we know that that butter has calories that this patient needs and so we require them to either take a supplement or to eat the butter and I had a patient once who went no give me the butter I'm going to eat that because the volume of the supplement for her was just so overwhelming where this tiny bad pad of butter was easier for her to consume. So sometimes you'll see volume is more difficult than the calorie content and sometimes vice versa. Some patients would rather take something that they deem as healthier, maybe a, a protein supplement than that butter. So it just depends on the patient. Um, things like hiding foods. So I recently had a patient who was diverting food by spitting it back into a cup. Um, and she was doing this at home as well. So guess what? We had clear cups that she was allowed to use. And then she started to hide it in the napkin. So we lost the napkins for mealtimes and she could wash up afterwards. And then uh, the poor patient was struggling so much. She started to hide food in her socks. Um, so oh. we... Uh, we had to make sure that she wasn't wearing socks during meals. And what she was doing was sticking it in her socks when she thought nobody was looking and of course got caught. But then she was flushing it down the toilet when she was allowed to use the restroom after her meals. Um, so there's other things that we see that are uh, not necessarily specifically associated with food, but things like reading labels. Um, so if your child or the patient is reading labels and calculating calories, uh, remove the labels, cover them up, you know, black them out, whatever you need to at home to deter that behavior. Um, looking at certain sites or certain social media influences can be really influential at this time. So that um, may be the time to restrict it for a time or where parents need to monitor them a lot closer than they had in the past. These um, comparison to peers. So, oh, but my friend doesn't eat this much or my friend looks like this. Um, I did have a really interesting case probably a couple of years ago now where it was two sisters and the one sister was perfectly healthy and had no mental health concerns or physical health concerns. And the one I was caring for um, had, was very entrenched in her eating disorder. And she showed me this notebook of 
list upon list where um, I did this, but my sister did this. My sister looks like this and I look like this. And everything about herself was negative where her sister was like glorified and my sister gets away with not eating, which wasn't the truth. Um, and her sister was, you know, eating well-balanced diet, diet and very healthy, but just to show you how entrenched they get and how irrational things get. Things like body checking. So covering up mirrors can be um, help deter that behavior. And then you may see them dressing inappropriately. Often they dress too warm. So they sweat, so they burn more calories or they're doing it um, wearing baggy clothes so that they're hiding how much weight they've actually lost. Wow, well, the, that, is, that, that is great information with really practical tips for parents on what to do, you know, at home. And I think, you know, we have to emphasize the fact that you're working with these severe cases. And we had an episode and a and great guest in our first series, a young lady named Stephanie, who talked about how her eating disorder was not identified very quickly because of implicit bias, basically, because mm -hmm. she was a young black woman and thinking anorexia is only a, you know, young white woman's disease. And we had Dr. Neutrina Tate on there who talked a lot about kind of the early intervention and the catching it early and how you take care of these things before they've escalated to the point that you have. And so I would encourage listeners, if you're wanting to know more about that, to go back and listen. But I think the takeaway, what I'm hearing you say, Christina, is that this is serious, this is life-threatening, but there is effective treatment, but it requires a lot of strength and a lot of teamwork, it sounds like, between the parents and the care provider. So as we're you know, coming to our end here, what, what words of hope and inspiration would you give to listeners out there? And what final words of advice would you have? I would say there's definitely hope out there and just being proactive. So, you know, seeking that help and looking for the appropriate resources and reaching out to your primary care provider and a dietitian and those people. And these kids get better. I see kids, you know, who I may encounter for other reasons um, and they're doing much better and their eating disorders controlled or, you know, they're now off in college and living independently and doing their thing and the eating disorder is in their past. So there is definitely hope out there. And, you know, we're just at a critical point in this pandemic where we're now entering a second pandemic. So just being aware of that and seeking that help, just asking those questions and asking for help. And there's help there. Well, thank you so much for all that you do to help kids everywhere with that, with eating disorders. I think this information has been really helpful and knowing that, you know, if you're a parent out there listening and you think that your child is struggling, you, this is not something you can just ignore and wait for it to go away. You're going to really need to take proactive action. And if your child is severe, uh, there are treatments and there are, uh, there are there are help and resources. There's help and resources out there for you. Christina, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Team Pete's Talks today and share your expertise with us. Yes, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Team Pete's Talks, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, experts in pediatrics, and advocates for children. Please join us again next time and thank you for listening.